Uh, one thing I find curious about human nature is how we respond to dashboard warning lights. You know, the little lights that pop up on, your, on the dashboard of your car that tell you, hey, there's an issue here. You probably want to look at this. Otherwise, the consequences could be uh, bad in, in a short while. Um, I've had one of those experiences uh, over the last week and a half. It happened in my work vehicle, uh, which is a 22-year-old manual uh, Peugeot 306. It's a diesel engine. And um, the thing sounds like a truck. Uh, If you, you can hear it coming from a little while away, and then as it rounds the corner, you're expecting to see, you know, a Hilux or or a tow truck even. But instead, it's this rusting little silver sedan. And uh, why do you still drive it, you might be asking. Well, in the last week and a half, my response to you is good question. Uh, When the reality is that uh, my father-in-law is kind of obsessed with these uh, French diesel cars. And in the family, they have about six of them. And he does all of the the fixing on it. So that's very uh, cheap and convenient for us, which is awesome. But it means that sometimes the warning lights come on. And we've got to do something about it. In fact, it's to the point where, you know, you you hear the diesel rumble of a Peugeot and I know exactly what it sounds like. It's like the calling card of the Boyle family. You know, one of them's coming to visit when you can hear it kind of rumble around the corner and then settle uh, outside the house. But a week, uh, Friday a week ago, I was driving home from work and then the battery light came on. And... uh, it was, it was really poor timing because we've actually been hosting some friends from New Zealand over this last week, and part of the plan was that they would borrow this vehicle over the weekend to be able to get around. And so my reaction was not one of gratitude. I'm sure the guy who invented those dashboard warning lights is like, people are going to love me. I've really done them a service here. They're going to think, wow, this guy's really clever. I did not see that light and go, oh, well, look at that. There's something wrong with the battery. I'd better look at that. Thank you, car. No. I was like, you can't be serious. I'm literally driving home on the day that my friends are flying in from New Zealand, and it was though that faint little glow was was mocking me and how busy my weekend was going to be. I was like, you don't understand. People People are relying on me. People are relying on you. This is a bad time. Very inconvenient. And uh, I think that that's probably a typical response for most of us. As we see that little light, we get frustrated. Like, this is really inconvenient. I don't have time to sort this out now. Life is very busy. I think the other way that we can respond, and all of us learn this lesson once, uh, is that we think, oh, there must be something wrong with the light. And the problem with with both of those responses is that we can actually ignore the problem. Either we're frustrated, it's inconvenient, it's bad timing, we think, oh, it's it's just a light, it's not a problem yet. Uh, Or we can think, oh, there's something wrong with with the light. And so either of those issues can, either of those responses, we can ignore the problem. But of course, what happens when you ignore the problem, eventually you're going to be stuck on the side of the road uh, waiting for RECQ. And then your life really has come to a halt for that day. You know, forget about whatever else you've, you've got planned. And, you know, I think that we have kind of these dashboard warning lights in our own life as well and in our own Christian faith. These little signals 
that tell us, hey, there's some normal functioning part of your engine as a Christian person that needs a little bit of attention right now. And we can sometimes have one of these two reactions. We can either see that and go, yeah, look, I know that that's not the best right now. I know I'm being irritable with my wife at home. I know that I'm not being, you know, patient with my kids. Um, or I know that I'm, you know, not giving as much time to, you know, devoting to God as I should be. But I, I'm just too busy to kind of address that right now. Or we can have the other, other reaction and go, oh, you know, I don't really believe that that's, uh, that's an issue at the moment. And sometimes those are a spiritual things. Sometimes it's a physical thing, right? You know, uh, I'm, I'm really tired all the time, but, you know, I, I don't think that's an issue. Or, or, you know, it takes me four or five coffees to get through a day, but, like, that's not, that's not a problem at the moment. But we need to learn to not have one of these two reactions to when these dashboard lights come on. And this series that we've been looking at is uh, called Important, and, and that's apparently a, a coding reference um, where if that appears in a, in a line of code, then what comes after it takes kind of functional priority over, over the rest of uh, what's going on. And I think that that's a bit like these dash warning lights. It's kind of like a, a circuit breaker moment where we need to stop, kind of stop and pause and go, is this working properly? And I think in our lives, we tend to make the Christian life so complicated. And we have to constantly drag ourselves back to what it really means simply to love God and to follow Jesus. And so I think that these core functionings of our engine as a Christian are, you know, the markers of simply walking healthily with God are that we are walking after the spirit and that we are not walking after the flesh. And the unfortunate truth is that if you are not walking after the spirit, you are by default automatically walking after the flesh. That's why it's walking. You're not standing still. There's no stationary in, in that deal. If you are not walking after the Spirit, if the fruits of the Spirit are not uh, growing and increasing in your life, then you are, by default, walking after the flesh. But you know what? The inverse of that truth is even more powerful. That is that if you walk after the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That's Galatians 5.16, and the Bible chooses to phrase it in the positive like that, because preachers like me can get up and, and tell you all the don'ts, all the things that you shouldn't be doing, and we can uh, beat you over the head with, with Bible verses, and then eventually you get to a place where you're so motivated by fear of doing the wrong thing that you start to get on that treadmill of performance and do the right thing. But really, walking after the Spirit should issue from a changed heart. It should issue from a heart that desires to love and to follow God and one that's actually energized by him because, church, we can't do it on our own. It's not possible for us. And so your job this morning is to let this little warning light, this little check engine light, whatever, it, whatever you want to call it, let it have its effect in your life. Don't think I'm too busy to sort that out or don't think, well, no, it's not indicating a problem for me. Take the time to examine your own life and go, okay, does this need addressed? Or is, is this part of my engine functioning healthily? And my job is to convey that to you this morning with grace because we are not under the law anymore. We are under grace and there is a better way. So this circuit breaker that we're looking at this morning is, is something that was really uh, profound for me in my early 20s, a really significant circuit breaker moment. Um, and so I'll, 
hopefully we'll have time and I'll tell you that story today. But uh, we're going to start in John chapter 13. And these are the words of uh, Jesus. He says, A new command I give to you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. You are the, the true church, the true followers of Jesus. If you have correct theology. No, he doesn't say that. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you correct false teaching and call out false teachers. <clears throat> no, doesn't say that either. Excuse me. <clears throat> I will push that away next time. I have to clear my throat. Apologies for that. <clears> throat> By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If every time you pray, a miracle happens. No, not that one. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. When you are healthy and rich. No, flimsiest one yet. In fact, that's nowhere in Scripture. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. When you finally figure out how to do church, also no. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Thank you. Demonstrate it here. <laughs> and so this dashboard light for us this morning is do we love one another? Do you love people? Easy question to ask, very difficult to answer unless we are first honest with ourselves. <clears throat> you see, love is important in the church. Love is all important. And the thing about God's love, and you may be aware that in the New Testament there are multiple words for love, and that the one that they choose to attribute to God, this, this godly kind of love, is, is the word agape. This agape love is, is selfless, it's self-sacrificial. And, you know, I think that we are not born with the tendency towards that kind of love. We might have, you know, natural affiliation and, and affection and connection with various people, but we are not naturally people who want to lay down our own lives in order to love other people. So how do we learn this love? Well, I think that it comes in two ways. The first one is by seeing it in example, and the second is by experiencing it ourselves. This is not something, ready, controversial statement coming up, this is not something that's, that you can learn through Bible study. Right? That's not going to change your life unless you've experienced the love of God in your own life, unless you've seen really, seen really how Jesus loves you. And so the way that this works in the church is that when we love one another, we learn how to love. We experience the love of Christ through how we love one another, and then that actually changes us, and we go, well, now I want to show that love to the next person. God's love multiplies, and so the church builds itself up in love. That's Ephesians 4.16. As the church 
We cannot fail to love one another. And we know that the church is not a building. We are the church. And so if each of us is a brick, then the mortar which holds us together is love. And as each new brick is added, the strength that they find is through love. That's what joins them together to the other bricks. And you can build a church on those other things. You can get all of those things right and you can build your church with the mortar of correct theology or of awesome worship or of you know exciting programs. But the moment something difficult comes along and, and suffering comes along and, and the moment people's sin starts to pop up its head, that building falls down because it's not held together in love. You know why? Because love covers a multitude of sins. And so love is the way that we faithfully represent Christ and it is the key to the body of Christ reaching maturity. We build, uh, the church builds itself up in love. As a church, we might get everything else Right, but why would people come here if they aren't loved? Actually, there is an answer to that question. People can come to a place where they don't experience love and because they've, they've learned to look for importance in other things. And that's an unfortunate place to be because it means that they haven't actually experienced love properly in their own lives. How will people want to come here if they are not loved? How will people know the love of Christ if they don't see it in the Christians? How will people trust Christ and be transformed if they don't see faith and transformation in his church? We cannot fail to love one another. And so our key passage for today comes from 1 John and in chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3 verses 10 to 18, and I've brought my Bible for visual credibility, but it's a different version to what's on the screen, so I'll just read from the screen anyway. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. Right? So John is expanding. He's unpacking what Jesus told him and the other disciples in John chapter 13. Anyone who does not love what is right and is not not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anybody has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. It's an incredibly practical passage. And today's message is not going to be complicated. You already know what it is. I'm going to tell you to love one another. There are some very practical things that we can get out of there. Love is from God. 
God says love, don't hate. God's love is, is radical. It's, a, it's at an extreme level. We give love when people don't deserve it. That's the point. We know love by looking at Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And more practically, I mean, this verse on the screen at the moment, I, I don't even need to explain that. Let the verse preach for itself. I'm going to read it again. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech but in actions and in truth. So let me break this down into a few key ideas. Firstly, loving one another is a fruit of regeneration, which means a new heart. When you become a Christian, God gives you a new heart. So at once you were not capable of this kind of love, but now you are because the Holy Spirit is inside you. Behold, the old man is gone and the new has come. You are a new creation. Secondly, envy, rivalry, jealousy, conflict, hatred, and harm are all signs of an unregenerated heart. Now, I'm not saying that a Christian is never going to do these things. And I'm not saying that a Christian is never going to experience these things or be tempted to do these things. But what I am saying is that a Christian who has a regenerated heart cannot persist in one of these scenarios and not be prompted that, hey, there's a problem here. There is an issue. This response is not right. This response is not godly. And if you find yourself able to persist in any one of those situations and there's not some kind of dash warning light saying, hang on a second... Maybe you haven't had that heart regeneration yet. But if you are someone who's been born again through God's Holy Spirit, then you, you hear that voice and you partner with the Holy Spirit to overcome that reaction in your own life. And thirdly, we know love because of the love Christ has demonstrated on the cross. And if you've heard me preach on the cross, you know that I can't stand when the cross is, is reduced to simply an example. The cross is an example of love and it is an example for us to follow, but we cannot live up to the cross, right? That's like Superman coming and saying, let me show you how to fly through the air and then expecting us to do it. That's why Jesus needed to come and die on the cross, Yes, to show us what love is. Yes, to give the perfect and ultimate example of love. But it's more than that. On the cross, God purchased our forgiveness legally through the atoning sacrifice of the perfect Son of God. So more than just an example, the cross is actually the passageway through which we've received and experienced the love of God. And much like it works in the church environment where God's love multiplies, the idea is that we receive the love of God and that that motivates, inspires, and energizes us to demonstrate the love of God. And at the same time, when we come to know God, we are actually invited into the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who existed in eternity in perfect love. Love didn't come from nowhere. Love came from the person of God who has been in that perfect triune connection of love since eternity passed. And so we are able to love because our identity is shifted. And we are now one with Christ. We are now one in the Godhead and we are one in his incredible love. 
That's as theological as we're going to get this morning. But how can we know that experiencing the love of God can transform us to being a loving person? How do we know that that's true, right? I've, I've, I've made the statement that when you know Jesus, you're invited into the Godhead. God's love is meant to, to change you. But how do, you, how do we know? Because it sounds a lot just like, you know, empty preacher wisdom that doesn't mean anything for my life. How do, how do you know that when you come to Christ, God can actually change you and make you capable of love? The word love appears 309 times in the New Testament. 240 of those instances are by two authors. Paul, who wrote 50% of the New Testament, accounts for 162 of those uses. So roughly half of them are from, you know, the words of Paul, and Paul writes roughly half the New Testament. So that's a fairly expected statistic. But the other author is John. 78 times he uses the word love, which accounts for about 25% of the usage of the word love. But John only wrote between 10 and 15% of the New Testament. I'm sorry for for the numbers. That's just how my mind works when I go to unpack the New Testament and and these ideas. But what, what I'm trying to get across here is that John speaks about love twice as often as anyone else. Right? John is obsessed with the idea of love. All of the most significant verses that I can think of, or pretty much all of the significant verses about love that I can think of are from the pen of John. John 15:13, greater love has no man than this that he lay down his life for his friends. John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. 1 John 4, 7, dear friends, let us love one another for love is from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. If you really want to know how obsessed John is with this idea of love, then when you go home, pick up uh, 1 John, 2 John and 3 John. They're, They're very short books. It'll take you 10 minutes to read the whole thing and you will see just how obsessed this guy is with the idea of love. But you know what verse I find the most profound from the pen of of John is John 13, 23, which says one of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Who is this disciple that John is talking about, the disciple whom Jesus loved? Well, that's his name for himself. That is John's name for himself. It brings up a few questions. Did Jesus love John more than the other disciples? No, I don't think so. We know that Jesus loves everyone and loves everyone equally. Well, then is it John bragging? Is it John running around the schoolyard saying, you know, I'm the teacher's favorite? No, I don't think so either. You see, John considered his identity as defined by the love of Christ. John understood that the closer you are to Jesus, the more you realize his love for you, the more you cannot think about anything else other than how loved you are by Christ. The the most important thing in your life, the way that you look look at yourself, you look 
in the mirror, in the morning, and it doesn't matter what else you've got in your life, you think, I am loved by Christ. I am loved by Jesus. And that is the most important part about who I am. Friends, do you know the love of Jesus this morning? Has it transformed your life? Because it has transformed mine. Is the love of God in you? Because the love of God should also be coming out of you. This is how you know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Because the love of Christ transforms us into people who love one another and who love others. If you want to know the whole point of this message, that's it. Love one another. Love should be the defining feature of our fellowship here at Kenmore. When people come and visit, and even more so when people decide to stay, it should be love that provides the sweetness and the flavor of this community. Not the quality of the coffee, though I'm glad it's good. Not the excellence of the music or the worship. I'm grateful for that too. Not even the correctness of the theology or the diligence in opening the Bible. What should define our fellowship here is the love that we have for one another. What does this love look like? Well, at the end of our passage, John very clearly says that, brothers and sisters, let us not love in word only, but in in deed, in action, and in truth. John is very clear that love is practical. What does it look like for us? It looks like making meals for each other. It looks like visiting each other. That stuff shouldn't all be the pastor's job. We are called to love one another. Give generously from what you have when you see someone in need. Encourage people when you have, whenever you have the chance. Buy or make someone a gift. Take time out of your day to comfort someone. Help someone with a project. Offer to look after the children of some parents so that they can have some time together or maybe even just sleep. Clean someone's house, mow their lawn, invite them over for a meal or a coffee, sponsor someone's child to attend a scripture union camp, buy someone a coffee from the cafe, tell someone how much you appreciate them. There's always something within reach for you to do practically which demonstrates your love more than simply saying it. That was not a difficult list for me to make. Because every single one of those things is something that someone in this community has done for me and my family since we've been here. And I'm so grateful for that. And it is, it is transforming. It is transforming to receive that kind of love and you go, you know what, I want to be that kind of person. I want to be that for other people. And that brings glory to God. Love needs to define us as a people of God and to provide the flavour of our fellowship. And I don't mean to, to oversimplify things which are really, uh, which are real and significant for people, but it, it's my opinion that um, psychology and, and counselling, as, as good as they are, cannot bring proper healing and wholeness into someone's life if they are constantly lonely, if they don't have people to love them, 
There's no amount of preaching, morality, and, and theology which is as powerful as experiencing the love of God through his hands and feet. And when it comes to a person who is suffering, the, the highest level of, of preaching, theology, and, and doctrine, and, and understanding is like a flickering candle to the interstellar brightness of a brother or sister in Christ simply holding their hand and saying, things are really tough for you right now, but I'm with you here, and I believe that things are going to be okay. Church, this is what Christ wants us to be because it is who Christ is. And my sincere hope for us is that the the profoundest thing we experience this morning does not come from this message, but is from the actions that we choose to give to each other after the service, in the cafe, in each other's homes, across this week. Let us love one another. And I told you I would um, tell you a a story from my uh, early 20s. I know I still look like I'm in there, but it was a little while ago for me. And I'll, um, I'll just invite Noah up as well if you could come up. When I was uh, in my early 20s, um, I was an incredibly competitive person. I still am a very competitive person, but uh, by the grace of God, that is not, doesn't have the edginess that it, that it used to be. I just love to win, to win at everything. I loved to be good at things, and I became incredibly good at hiding everything that I was bad at and promoting everything that I was good at so that people would only see me doing things that were good. Now, trust me, I am bad at things. <laughs> Just take me out golfing or, you know, somehow uh, get me to dance. It's, it's not pretty. But it was to the point where I could not love other people. In fact, I, could not, I couldn't celebrate anyone else's success because I was constantly jealous that people would think that they were better than me at that. It was to the point where my poor sister, the number of times she would end up in tears because I would see her doing something and trying really hard and then I would devote all my energy to doing it much better than she did in about half the time and she would end up uh, in tears. And I, I didn't make her feel good about herself. You know, it didn't matter whether it was football or whether it was table tennis or, or whether it was, you know, music. Or abs- I just had to be the best. And it was at the point where probably many of you who are my friends this morning probably wouldn't want to be my friend back then. But I had an experience of, uh, of God. I was at Bible college and, of course, I had to be the best at that too. I won't tell you what my nickname was in Bible college because I will never live that down. But my home group is already laughing and they tease me about it relentlessly and it's great for my humility. So you can ask them about it. I started learning Greek and I had to be the best at that. And I picked up 1 Corinthians 13 and, and was reading it in the Greek and very famous passage, you all know it. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Always protects, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never ends. And like a boot to the face, I realized that every single one of those words in, in the Greek language, it's not as clear in the English, every single one of those words is a verb. 
is an, is an action, is a doing word. They're not adjectives. It's not love is a patient thing. Love is, love is a kind thing. And, and I've tried to make this a little bit clearer for you. So here you have the, the international Sandy paraphrase coming soon. <clears throat> but I'm telling, you, I'm telling you, this transformed my life. Love is waiting patiently. Love is showing kindness. Love is not being envious. Love is not boasting. It is not behaving arrogantly. Love chooses not to dishonour others. Love chooses not to focus on the interests of self. Love angers slowly. Love offers a clean slate of forgiveness every time. Love chooses to rejoice in the truth rather than take pleasure in evil. Love is always protecting, giving trust, expressing hopefulness for the future and persevering. Love continues through all things. And I I read those verses and I I realised how many times in my life I had told somebody I loved them and I was lying. And I realised that I was the most unloving person I knew. You see, love is a verb. Love is something that we do. And I wonder what is this circuit breaker doing for you? What is this warning light doing in your life at the moment? Is it telling you, hey, this needs some attention? My encouragement to you is that if God could do that work in me, he can do it in you. Because I spent about six months in tears most mornings over the brokenness of my soul. And God transformed me to the point where, you know, after about six months, one of my friends came up to me and and said, you know, something's changed about you. It happened a few months ago. I, I could, you know, remember it clearly. One week you were just different. It's like all of the spiky bits of Sandy just fell off. Because God's love transforms, church. When we know how much God has loved us, when we know how much God has forgiven us, we want to love others. And I'm here to encourage you that it's not just necessary for you to love, it's possible. God can transform you, but like the Apostle John, you must first be found in the love of Christ. You must know how much he has loved you. And we see that on the cross because he died for you. He died for us. If you'd all like to just join with me as as we pray, close your eyes and, and bow your heads. If you need to experience the love of God this morning, if you need maybe a fresh revelation of what that love looks like in your life, then as usual, the prayer team is going to be off to the side here and they would love to, to pray with you and, and invite you to experience God's love like you never have. Maybe you're like I was and you're realising that you don't know how to love. That's okay because God wants to make that different and he wants to make that right. And if you need to do some business with him on that this morning, then you can do that in your own seat where you are or you can come and and get some prayer as well.
today, let us make a decision to love one another through our actions. And it's possible that there's someone here that has not experienced the love of God in their life. You may have heard that Christianity is a religion about love, that we are encouraged to love one another, but you know it's more than that. Christianity isn't just simply calling you to a life of love. Christianity is telling you that we base our love on the cross of Christ because it is not just the demonstration of perfect love. It is the vehicle through which love comes to us, through which we are transformed and we are joined to God. Love is found in God and love is received through Christ and the cross. And if you need to know God's love this morning, then I would ask you to just, in this moment of silence and anonymity, just raise your hand, not putting anyone on the spot. But if you need that love in your life and you need to invite Christ into your life, then I encourage you, come to Jesus this morning because he loves you. And so if that's you, would you just raise your hand and we're just going to pray with you and for you. There is no greater love than that which Jesus has poured out for you. Let's all pray together. Lord Jesus, we just thank you for how much you have loved us, that you have seen us in our desperation and that you have sent your son to die upon the cross to purchase us for you. We thank you that this body builds itself up in love. And would you help us to do that? Would the sweetest thing about our presence here be the love we have for one another? Because that is from God. That's from you. And it brings glory to you. Would you change our hearts where needed, God? And turn us into the people that you want us to be. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name.